the Euro area. I've never heard it referred to as the Euro area, but <laughs> the Euro area, South Korea. You know why uh, they called it the Euro area? Because um, they wanted to include the UK. That's really cheap right uh, now. And the pound has been crushed. They pounded. It's <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There was a day this week I did not feel particularly good about myself. Go on. So I was reading this, uh, this book about FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Eleanor Roosevelt. And it was focused on uh, like their part of their relationship and then how they handled like the home front, so to speak. So domestic U.S. during that time, because a lot of the times you like look at World War Two and, you know, all that stuff. They also also the Great Depression, of course. But this is more like not so much policy, but just like their home, like how they manage the White House. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Written by Doris Kearns Goodwin, the classic, you know, biographer and whatnot. And there was this point where. As he comes, so spoiler alert: FDR dies, and we all he, do. Doogles, we all do. We all do. But I just don't. I don't. I had to say spoiler alert. The when he's starting to get sick, they're running all the tests on him and whatnot. So then the doctor asks him to hold his breath, like for as long as you possibly can, mm-hmm. right? And then the next line starts with, "And he only held it for." And in my mind, I was like, like three seconds, like something that's so egregious. Right. And then it was like 35 seconds, 79, 35 seconds. Oh, it's 35. And I was like, can I do that? And so, so I'm, I'm out. I was actually exercising at the time, but I start my stopwatch and then decide to hold my breath. This is a terrible idea, but like, don't, if you are in the middle of, wait, wait, okay. You're exercising, reading a book. Well, I was listening to a book about a former president's (laughs) health. This is what's happening. This is how yeah, how he managed are. his home. Okay. Okay. Sure. Sure. <laughs> is that is that, le- is that less boring somehow? It's fascinating though. No, they they treated this. The White House was like a uh, a glorified hotel at the time. Like people were always staying in this place. It was kind of that's cool. But anyway, yeah. yeah. So uh, so anyway, but I was like thirty five seconds doesn't seem like that short. And so I went, but you know what, because it's probably just shorter, it's longer or shorter than like, I think it is. So let me do that right now. So I yeah. fired up my yep. stopwatch on the, on the phone, hit that thing, took a deep breath, like a, you know, like deep breath in guess, guess where I landed. 20, 29, 18 seconds. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> you should feel pretty bad about yourself. <laughs> I don't know how this is on the investment podcast, but hey, <laughs> well, first of all, you're at altitude. Second of all, I think the fact that you were in the middle of a workout could have some impact here. But um, you, you know the trick to get rid of hiccups, right? No, proceed. Dr. Yeah, if, you can, if you're in the middle of hiccups and you can hold your breath for 45 seconds, there's like probably 98% chance they disappear. It's very tough to hold your breath for 45 seconds, but... Well, that's the trick. whole thing. That's why like 35 seconds doesn't seem like it's that short. But but alas, anyway, I will. I'm going to change gears. Is that Wait, okay? one more thing on FDR. <laughs> Did you know yeah. uh, how him and his wife met? 
Yes, but go on. Yeah, well, they were just looking for names that rhymed and Franklin Delano and Eleanor, and then they just it went from there. That's Franklin, basically the whole story. Hold on, Franklin Delano? <laughs> That's what you said. <laughs> I was making fun of you. <laughs> now we got to move on. All right. Okay. So actually, I'm not going to ask you to rate and review the podcast right now because after you just heard that segment, That's it's not garbage. the right time. <laughs> but wait until after you finish uh, listening to this whole show and then go rate and review the podcast. Uh, please uh, continue sending us listener mail. We love getting that. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. We're going to end this episode with some awesome uh listener mail uh and as we hop in i'm going to talk about somebody that's going out on top we like to talk about going out on top this is more like going out and like a peak in the middle of large mountains though but still it's kind of on top you're talking about kanye right no no and when when yay when yay goes out yay is going out like a flaming turd like yeah, there's no I, way that Ye goes out on top. At this point, I think we know Ye is not going out on top, unfortunately. Yeah. But who I'm talking about is Ray Dalio, chairman of Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world. Started this thing almost 50 years ago, back in 1975. Built it up to about 150 billion dollars. Has written some books about a life and work, uh, about the history of like uh, of economic forces over thousands of years is best known i'd say correct this if you believe otherwise as like a macro investor like looks at what are interest rates doing what are global economies doing and therefore where should you put your money the reason i say going out on top is because the flagship fund of bridgewater associates is up like over 30 percent this year from last i i saw i don't know exactly mm-hmm. but last i saw over 30 percent. this is a year where the market is down over 20 percent so far so that's awesome it's been the last just like, massive outperformance. Yeah, this year massive yeah. outperformance. The last decade has not been that great, but yep, go out, go out when your flagship fund is over thirty percent. So it's also it can be really hard for someone of that stature, right, to like pass the torch on, right. And so also shout out for that way to do it. Yeah, so I'm in the middle of his. Uh, his latest book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, oh, which I think good. you made it it's through, good. right? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, pretty solid. Um, really like it. <laughs> That's the first one, sorry, quick aside, where he like goes, hey, if you want to just skim this thing, I just highlighted some sections in bold and you can just read those. It, it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it whatever, it's like 400 pages, but he's like, if you just read these bold sections, you're pretty good. That also takes some humility, right? Most people... They want you to read every word that they write. And he's like, depending on time, roll with it. <laughs> I think Array, maybe for a different reason than most. Well, two things. One, I'm pretty sure Bridgewater is still the world's largest hedge fund and has been for a long time. So that's a really impressive feat. I think of him relating to the all seasons portfolio. And do you as well, Diggles, or am I the only one? Yeah, all weather, I think. is the Yeah, one. sorry. Yeah. It gets different names. Yeah. And maybe his is all weather. For those who don't know, just the concept is pretty cool. At one point, and I think this was 70s or 80s, he talked about kind of not being able to know. You know, he didn't necessarily want to have to make predictions to get solid performance. So when you talk about all weather portfolio, it's typically like I think his most common or his initial one had like 17 different unique asset class type things that 
he was like, whichever of these is moving in whichever direction, I'm going to find a way to make a positive return on that. So he is effectively saying, whatever the whatever weather is happening out there, I'm going to have a fund that can perform in that environment, which if you look at his most recent performance this year, he's clearly doing something different than your average equity manager. So um, it's a really clever idea. And I think it was incredibly counterintuitive when he came up with it now. And because of Bridgewater's success, it's much more popular now than it used to be. Pretty challenging to put together. They use some uh, pretty complex instruments to get there. But it, it's a really cool idea to say, I don't care about this so- stock or these government bonds. I care about all of them. And I'm going to set up a fund that performs in any environment. I don't think I did a great job articulating that, but um, I'd encourage reading more on it if you're if you're interested. It's a fascinating concept. Agreed. All right, you want to fishbowl it? Yeah, there's a there's one big thing I want to talk about today, but there's so many fingers to this. So the UN came out this week and urged central banks to halt interest rate increases. And in large part they did this because they said if you do that, it's going to really hurt uh, emerging economies. Basically, if the world's dominant players and most powerful economies raise rates, that cascades down in a way that's incredibly negative. So the main organization that we're talking Sorry, about here. I, yeah. Is it okay if I step in here just to, to give a, a flavor as to why that is? Yep. As you mentioned, U.S., right? The global player right now, dominant economy. Uh, interest rates going up in the U.S. Uh, can also have an impact on the value of the U.S. dollar, which it has. Mm-hmm. And the that in turn can increase the gap between the value of the U.S. dollar and the value of an emerging market currency like a, like the Turkish lira, right, that we've talked yep. about, which it has. And many emerging markets have their debt denominated in US dollars. And so mm-hmm. when that when that gap occurs, effectively the amount of debt that they owe goes up. Because the the gap in their currency no, it is absolutely there, does. the debt because... goes up. Their debt can become unmanageable. Unman- so that's where that's where like the UN's coming from here. All right. Continue. Well, there there's that, but there's so many more layers. So um the, this is the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development where I'm, I'm going to pull some quotes. They say it's estimated that the Fed's rate increases so far uh, would reduce poor countries' economic output by $360 billion over the next three years, and that further tightening will do additional harm. I certainly want to talk about this. I find this fascinating. This is the first time in my investing lifetime that I can remember the, U- the UN giving guidance like this, and I think that's really bizarre. But I also want to hit on all the ramifications of this so remember our boy neil kashkari who's not actually our boy he's the what president of the minneapolis fed yep and there was a lot of pushback in 2020 ish when they cut rates drastically and pumped all this additional money in the system that the people that benefited from that were wealthy stockholders and business owners and so we talked this is probably two years ago now we talked about an interview he gave where he's like listen we know that probably when when Fed puts more money into the system and cheaper debt into the system, it probably benefits the wealthy more than it benefits the poor. But hey, we have low employment and that benefits the poor. So it's most he, he was kind of saying in a way, it's most important to benefit 
the people that need it most, which are probably on the poor end of the spectrum. And the way we do that as a Fed is a really inefficient way. Unfortunately, a lot of the wealth ends up with the people who don't need it. But we don't have a better way to cascade it down to your, your person on the lower end of the spectrum. Remember that? I do. I do. That's a, a very tricky debate with one yeah. country. If we just talk about the U.S., when you take a similar debate and have the U.N. in kind of Neil Kashkari's position, in a way, being like, oh, you can't raise rates. Well, where was the U.N. when the U.S. and other developed countries were cutting rates? And I would assume you do the same analysis and you find out that that has a $500 billion positive impact on emerging economies. Like, was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? May You know where I'm going with this? Like, isn't it just so interesting how interconnected everything is and all the layers to someone say, well, the most dominant economy in the world is doing this with their monetary policy. At what point do you have to say they have to act in their best interests? And unfortunately, there's catastrophic damage that ripples out from that. Oh, that was... I, I was like, I was with you. I was on the train. I well, hopped on I, that midnight train no, to Georgia. I don't... And then, and then our systems, our global economic systems are so interconnected that even, even if you just say that you, that the Fed is responsible for the US, right? Yeah. If you just take that, you still have to, the modeling you have to do has to take into account the impact you have on that nation and what that nation then can do for, for you. Like it matters. Other nations failing, I'm, I'm going to the extreme, right? But other nations failing even has a big impact on the U.S. So even if you're just looking at what matters to the U.S., you have to think about what's happening in other countries. From a like a business economic standpoint, even beyond just the humanitarian side of it, right? It's a, I'm going to, I'm going to step back. Now this is going to be relevant. All right. I'm going to step back into World War II times and FDR because why not? Reading about his home. Back then, because the U.S. didn't enter the war until we got attacked, right? December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. We entered the, We entered the next day. That's when we entered the war. But we were supporting the war before then for a number of reasons. FDR mm-hmm. couldn't join because it would have been unpopular, right, in the U.S. But we were, we basically said, the U.K. can't fall. France can't fall. France did fall, spoiler alert. But, like, th- these countries can't fall because if they fall, then like what happens to the world? Yeah. I think we have to, you have to think about that, even if it's only self-preservation. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so uh, again, I was with you. I was rolling on that train, like the UK can't fall. And <laughs> then somehow we just ended up where you're comparing World War II, where you could have a dominant player that clearly hates the US ruling Europe and other parts to rate increases in 2022 being somehow comparable. I mean, I think, I don't think when we raised rates in the forties and fifties, we were like, what, what does this do to the world economy? No, but it, it wasn't one. The world economies weren't as interconnected. They were always interconnected, but not as interconnected as they are today. Right. And two, let's talk about China. We brought this up on the, the pod before. So, cause economy, economic activity, is a way to also control other countries. U.S. has been doing it for a while. China has been over-investing, as we've discussed, in emerging economies, Mm -hmm. both in Asia and in Africa. And they've done that. I'm going to harness my inner chi 
and I don't mean that as C-H-I, I'm doing a little wordplay there, yeah. I mean X-I, and say that China does not have a dominant military presence by any means, right? The U.S. has a more dominant military presence even in Asia. China doesn't. And so China has to attack from a an economic standpoint and a technological standpoint. So China has been really aggressive there. And so we also can't allow China to own emerging markets more so than we do. And so it is in our best interest to make sure that these, some of these countries, right? All hold your heart. Are you holding your heart because you believe that's beautiful? Oh man. It's, it's fascinating stuff, but I don't know. Yeah. Like, you're acting like we asked Jerome Powell and team to manage our foreign affairs with the way they handle our interest rates. <laughs> In a way, you are. In a way, I mean, you're saying you can't let China go finance this emerging economy's debt. In a way. And it's like, no, that's not his job. His job is to work to maintain the health of the U.S economic system right yeah it's unfortunate that the world economies have become so interconnected it's unfortunate that when the u.s has 10 percent inflation so does the uk and so does france and so does australia and so it like all the developed economies that are make up the so-called west also seem to and and that's why everyone is not everyone but the large majority of those countries are raising rates rapidly right now and that's bound to have catastrophic effects. But if you if you argue that that matters, then you also have to say, and if those dominant world economies don't get inflation under control, there's incredibly negative ramifications of that too. Because if you have a runaway inflation the world over, can you imagine what that's like? You're right that it is not J-Po. It's not J-Po's job. I may, maybe I... I uh either misspoke or overspoke, which is just what I do. So most likely yeah. that's what happened. But I didn't mean to say it's his job. I meant to say like it's in the U.S.'s interest. And so as we think about this as a country, this stuff's important. I think J-Po's job, I think the U.N. is overstepping. I I do. Um, I mean, they can say whatever they want. So it's an over, over speaking or whatever. But I, I don't think it's J-Pow's job to think about all the stuff that I just talked about. But I do think it's important for the U.S. for those reasons. And so it's worth like thinking about i think he and his team just need to think about the economic consequences of what happens when when we do this and what happens to other countries and therefore what happens to us like because in the end it's his job for yeah. our economy and specifically unemployment and inflation to be under control but maybe digress too far it'd be uh, good to pull it, this we, we can pull this back in well let's pull back with a quote he says because uh, i'm a little surprised by this but it goes exactly to your point it says we are very aware of what's going on in other co- economies around the world and what that means for us and vice versa. So they they very much are saying like, we can't do too much to destroy the world economy because there's a boomerang effect if we do that. But also, I think target number one, uh, you know, there's one foundation here. It's to not have runaway inflation. And I would argue that you have to think about the U.S. <laughs> this is funny because it sounds like America first. I don't mean it that way. But you have to think about the U.S. economy first and foremost. And then you don't want to destroy developing economies or even advanced economies around the world. So you're trying to be careful with that. But yeah, I, I've just never seen something like this from the U.N. And I don't think it's appropriate. 
Can I but tie I this? I understand it. Can yeah. I tie this to investing? Please. Okay. GMO came out with their quarterly newsletter. Um, this must have been what was it? Maybe a couple of months ago. I don't know. It's called the thirty-five year highs for the dollar. Our currency, our problem. It sounds like they were trying to like harness something like mace or something with that, but it didn't quite work. But anyway, so I thought this was an interesting tie-in to this whole conversation. And to sum it up in a high level, and then we can hit some key points if you're interested. What this is saying is if you take what we just discussed around the impact of interest rates and currencies around the world, it's looking at the the differences in currency valuations. And then historically, what those differences have meant for both uh, currency returns as well as equity returns, right? Always non-predictive, but really interesting from a contextual standpoint. Make sense? Any yeah. comment before hitting some some details here? Nope. So one thing, if you look historically at what they're calling the real effective exchange rate, so this is like the the value of the U.S. dollar relative to other currencies, it looked at it from 1971 through now, and we are at one of, in that 50-year period, we are at one of the highest peaks of the dollar valuation relative to other currencies with... Uh, 1971 being really high and the mid 80s being really high. So first, let's uh, take status on where we are and then let's see what's happened historically in interest rate or sorry, with uh, returns and figure out where you might want to go. And GMO as always has recommendations. But let me give you some stats as to where we are currently. If you look at some developing nations, the U.S. currently right now is about see 17% over the average for the G10 currency valuations along and it's right alongside like the Canadian dollar, Australian dollar, New Zealand dollar, all around that same number. Japan is 20% below and the euro is 17% below the average for for G10 currency valuations. If you look at emerging currencies, it gets buck wild straight child. So I mentioned the Turkish lira before. The Turkish lira is negative 69% below, 69%. South Korea, 23% below. Thailand, 12% below. Really, really interesting. All right, I'm going to pause there because I said a lot of words and get your your take. My only take is this has been interesting for my international investments because the the companies can be performing great, but the their currency is getting so much weaker than the dollars. It's it almost ties into the UN conversation we just had that like those profits, even though they flow downstream, they aren't flowing downstream in a way that's beneficial to me in dollars because the dollar's so much stronger than it used to be. Yeah. But that will flip at some point because everything yeah. reverts and yeah. I'm excited. Exactly. At some point. And that's that's where the creme de la creme of this whole thing that I thought was interesting, as you've said many, many times, right? Mean reversion. And so it looks at for currency valuations when currencies are more than 14% cheap is what it's saying. Uh, on average, between 1970 and 2022, there's been 9.3% per year is like the average return of the currency and 6.7% for 2000 to 2022. So it's saying currencies when they're undervalued typically outperform. Boom. Mean revert. Yeah. Then... The creme de la creme of that is saying, but when currencies are undervalued in a country and 
equities are undervalued in the country, that's when there's what they call there's two ways to win. And that's the what they're saying is like, that's the bet that you want to take. And so today, when you have when you it's looking at what are the currency, sorry, what are the countries where both the current the currency is overvalued and the equities are overvalued? It's saying the United States of America is one of them. Yeah. Yep. The other is India. And then the places where the currency is undervalued and equities are undervalued are Japan, Sweden, the Euro area. I've never heard it referred to as the Euro area, but <laughs> the Euro area, South Korea. You know why uh, they called it the Euro area? Because um, they wanted to include the UK. That's really cheap right uh, now. And a pound has been crushed. It pounded. It's, <laughs> so they, they're really trying to get the UK in there. But yes, the UK does not yeah. use the Euro. Yeah. So it's just, it's just quite interesting. It's basically saying, like, look at the places where currency hit real hard equities hit real hard and it's non-predictive from a timing perspective but there is something bound to turn around unless the country fails but when you're looking at like japan sweden south korea like you know it it takes a lot for countries like that to go down and the euro area (laughs) i can't get over it sorry that's uh you got me really excited over here. I'd say all my international bets are in places where I have a, would you call it a double chance of winning or something? There, Two ways to win. Two ways yeah. to win. Yeah. Yeah. I'm into that. It's great. I, I really love the point at the end. They're like, so if you, if you have like non US holdings, right now is not the time to hedge those. Like if you, if you don't have any hedges in place, do not start hedging. Right. Yeah. And if you do have hedges in place, then you should really start like thinking about what you want to do with those hedges as to like, do you relax your hedging policy? Because stuff in some of these places is looking like buck wild, double cheap right now. So a relatively double cheap right now. Double cheap. We're going to get a trademark on that. <laughs> double cheap. All right. So, you know, your friend Warren Buffet. Oh That's yeah. I saw this quote this week, which probably means it's a Jason Swig quote that is being attributed to Warren <laughs> Buffett. You get yes. that one too? Yes. All right, here we go. Too often, a vast collection of possessions ends up possessing its owner. The asset I most value, aside from health, is interesting, diverse, and long-standing friends. Oh. What does it say to you that one of the world's richest people thinks that? Can you elaborate on your question? I mean, has he, has he truly got it all figured out? No. I mean, he sits up there every day <laughs> drinking Coke and eating peanut brittle. There's still stuff that this man has not figured out. That's where I was hoping you'd go with it. I think it's a good quote regardless. It is a good quote. Don't let your possessions possess you. Yeah, it is a good quote. It is a very good quote. Okay, I'm going to reach into the fishbowl. It's been a while since we've done this to quiz you on some stock market data. And this, my friend, is going to be stock market data that you are going to say who cares about. But that is why it's going to be so much fun. Yeah. So, hey, guys, you know how Dougal said don't rate and review the podcast earlier. Let's just not rate and review this episode because <laughs> this is going to be hot garbage. Oh, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So we, as, as we've talked about before, we have a Substack, skippydougals.substack.com, where on Monday we release the articles that we talk about, tweets we talk about, whatever, so that you can like read the, the source material that we hit on. This week we did something a little bit different. Um, so it's the the Substack that came out 
at the beginning of Monday this past week and go check that out. Skippy Doogles.substack.com. We did something a little different and looked at through the end of September, how did all of the equities that trade on major US exchanges, so non-OTC, how do they perform so far year to date? And it's both individual company stocks as well as funds. And then laid out like what are the top, the top performing ones, right? So you can go check that out. I'll give you some high-level stats, and then I'm going to quiz you, and it's going to be glorious. High-level stats. There are almost 20% of all of the equities we just talked about are down more than 50%, 50% or more this year, almost 20%. About half are down 20% or more. That's, like, that's a large material number. Yep. There are about, I think it's 17% or so that are up 20% or more. It's like not many, like not many stocks are up. And probably um, energy stocks if we're talking year to date. Yeah. Energy. And this also is uh is funds. So it's like, it's a combination of vast oversimplification as you'll see in a moment, but energy stocks for individual companies, funds that are energy based, and then anything that's shorted the market, <laughs> like effectively, like yeah. all the, all the shorts. Okay. Now here comes the quiz. Here comes the quiz. I'm going to give you the name of an equity, and then you're going to give me the ranking that it has with number one being the best performing stock, mm -hmm. the ranking that you believe that it has of all of the stocks here. And to give you a total number, there were 10,409 uh, equities. That are on here. Okay, right? so we're just gonna call it ten thousand. I you're gonna give me equity, and I have to tell it where tell you where it falls in the rank. Exactly from one and to I, ten thousand. Yeah, one is best go, performing. One is best performing. I'm gonna go top to bottom, so the number will always be higher. Just to to give you some leeway. Okay. okay, what we often call oxy, Occidental Petroleum. Well, so Buffett's uh, taking a significant stake. It's had headwinds with uh, increasing energy prices and up until recently. This is all year to date. Top 300 performers. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this year to date through September, it's number 42. So you're definitely right. Okay. Number 42 at 113%. Here's a non-energy stock for you. One of your favorites, H&R Block. One of my it's favorites. Not, it's, yeah, it's not one of your favorites. I'm just throwing that out there. H&R Block. Okay, let's see. Uh, no major changes to the cat. Uh, tax code in 2022. Uh, nothing going on here. I don't know what their cash flows look like. Let's say 500. No, number 82. What? 85% this year. Yeah, I was like, what? Why? <laughs> Why? Who knows? Okay. Stock market. Wait, random. you're serious. Uh, like 80% of stocks are down. Of that subset, <laughs> lots of stocks are dead. Somehow, HR Block is. I mean, I'm it's not going to cheat here. I'm not going to pull it up and look at their financials, but holy cow. All yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. This one, this next one is actually one of your uh, like joke time favorites Tuttle Capital Short Innovation ETF. So, this is the ETF that bets against Kathy Wood. So, I mean, it's brilliant. It's probably, it's probably like 150th, About, 150. Yeah. No, number 138. Yeah. 67% up. Okay. Yep. I'm going to skip a couple, then we'll get to the negatives. Uh, Exxon, number 215 at 47% up. World Wrestling Entertainment, number 241 at 43% up this year. Okay. Now, here are some negatives. ARC. So but I'm still the, giving you a rank between 1 me and 10,000? Yeah. Uh, gosh, they got to be 9,000. Yep. 
9,175, down 60% this year. And then our good friend and mentor, MicroStrategy. Uh, Here-to-date Bitcoin performance. Oh, let's go, like, for giggles, 9,999. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 9,217, down 61%. So just about. Oh, I thought it would have been worse. Yeah. I know, I know, yeah. It's a, it's a, there's a long tail, basically. There's, there's like a, a number that are in that 90 to 99% down, you know, type of range too, but like yeah, the company's so, done basically. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. They're in towel territory. So, uh, that's, it was, it was interesting like, to look at, look this stuff. The reason why I said, uh, Skippy was going to say this is a bag of nonsense is because like, who cares really? Like these, these numbers don't mean anything, you know, long-term, long-term investing. It is interesting. I find this stuff interesting, though, to look at some of these figures and how like H&R Block, like the randomness that exists in the market is just like fascinating, I think, to me sometimes. And the one that I, I pinged you about that I said, I kick myself because this felt like an obvious thing if I like if I'd ever even thought about it was one of the top performing funds shorted the 20 year U.S. Treasury. It's up like 145% this year. The reason I say that is I don't think it's obvious that it would have been up 145%. Like that's not obvious. But it was very, like we knew from the beginning of the year when we were talking about like get out of bonds, yeah. right? Because like like that one was like a, a surefire bet to make money this year. It could have been up 10%. It could have been up 5% or whatever. But like it being up was obvious. But yeah, that short is up 145% this year. It's interesting. <laughs> So I have con I've mixed emotions about that because you're exactly right. We um we actually called this one. Like I got out of bond. I've held some portion of bonds for more than a decade, and the writing was just on the wall that there was no chance for success there. So I got out and I'm proud of that. Like that I diagnosed that effectively. But man, when you flip over to the dark side and then think about shorting something, it typically doesn't end well. It, it it just I think that is one where you can kick yourself all you want, but if you change your investor mentality to think like that, it's gonna you're gonna end up with more losses than gains in no. the long run. Yeah, I f I fully agree. And the reason that I say this, just to be really clear, is not because it was obvious that interest rates would rise. Because you could say even right now, you know, with the jobs report that came out this week, we're gonna see inflation next Thursday, which likely isn't dropping a lot, right? Most likely. Even with that, you could say, well, I know that the the Fed's going to raise interest rates again. So therefore, should I short bonds? And I'd say, no, 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 that, that's not it. The reason I said it was so obvious is because interest rates were zero. Yeah. And it was obvious we weren't going negative. Like, that is the reason. Like, there was, there was like a full backstop that existed is why I say it. I think right now, even knowing or feeling like we know that interest rates are still going to go up, it's not, it's, it's not like it was back then. So that's why I say it. If only there was a way to like do the the Kathy Wood short and be like, <laughs> well, I can't I can't deal with the straight fist again. Seven point six times. Yes, exactly, rate. exactly. Oh my goodness! All right, one stat you t you mentioned Exxon. What's that on Exxon and Meta uh, before we jump into listener mail? So in September twenty twenty one, Facebook slash Meta's market capitalization was over $1 trillion. And ExxonMobil's yep. market capitalization was $228 billion. What's happened since then? 
Meta has gone way down. Exxon has gone way up. Currently, Exxon Mobil trades at a market capitalization of $383 billion. Actually, this this data is a little old. It's like a week old. And Meta is trading at 372. You, you got to oh. see this chart, man. It's crazy. It's, yeah, it's a wild reversal of fortunes. That is fascinating. Okay. Listener mail? Yeah. All right. Dive in. Cue up the lyrics. Hit it. They fight. I really like this. So this listener mail comes from our good friend, Sphere. Uh, and sorry if I have that pronunciation wrong. If I do, feel free to send in a note and, and correct it. I want to get make sure to get your name right. Really love this. And it's really about investor psychology is what this, this listener mail is about. And I think it hits on a really, really strong point. Not going to read it verbatim, but going to give like the highlights of, of the the context, the situation, and where the question is. What Sphere is saying is the ultimate question is how long to hold out, when to get in, and how do I deal with FOMO? FOMO being fear of missing out. The context is what he's saying is back in early 2020, so January 2020, was feeling like the market's overvalued. And there were some stocks that if the market gets hit, I'd be really interested in buying. So keep it, keeping those stocks on my watch list. February 19th, things peak. Everything starts to fall. You get into March 2020. Watching that watch list, have my prices that want to buy, but the stocks never hit those prices. They never got down that far. And then the market took off. That's the context. So then Sphere's feeling like, oh, like if I had just bought then, you know, I could have taken advantage of the gains. Now we're in a situation, 2021, market goes haywire, everything is overvalued again, market's getting hit this year, still has the watch list. I don't know if they're the same stocks or not, but Sphere has this watch list and is saying, I have my, the prices for those, those prices haven't been hit. I don't necessarily think that these stocks are dirt cheap right now. They haven't hit it, but I also don't want to miss out again. If we hit a bottom that I haven't hit and things take off, I'm going to kick myself. And what he refers to in our show is that we have said, can't make predictions, but wouldn't be surprised if the market went down a lot further from here and never know what the market's going to do. It could also go up, right? But wouldn't be surprised if it went down further from here. And he's like, do I wait? What do I do? How do I manage the psychology? So that's the, that's the question. I think it's a classic situation and really well articulated in the email as well. Let you take such it. a great question. Thanks for the listener mail. So, Dougals, how do you think about buying and selling stocks? Sorry, that's too too broad. <laughs> let, let me jump to the case. I think of it as an auction. It effectively is an auction, right? If you're bidding on something on eBay and it's it's that TV you really want, like the person that is willing to pay the most money is the one that's going to win that auction. This is what's happening here, yep. right? Yep. Yep. Stocks are changing hands based on fear and uncertainty of the seller, probably because things are going down and potential optimism or fundamental analysis of the buyer. What happened for so long is the buyers were these 
folks that were disconnected from fundamentals that were driving a U.S. bubble in the stock market anyway. Now, when that pulls back, this might be the hardest question in all of equity investing. I mean, yeah, when to buy, what to buy. It's kind of easy if you have a clear understanding of the true value of an equity, but that's really hard to do, especially in an environment like this. We talk about cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio a lot. And I'll tell you, historically, if you try and time the market based on that gauge as a a valuation signal, it doesn't really work because sometimes things get way more expensive than they should be. And things sometimes things get way cheaper than they should be. So if you go to the Buffett analogy, sorry to be long winded here, but I want to get your thoughts and I want to go back and forth a lot on this of we like hamburgers in this household. And when hamburgers go on sale, we buy more hamburgers, right? If you disconnect this from equities for a second and go, the hamburger costs a dollar a patty and it's at 75 cents. It's like, well, you probably buy some because that's good for you. But you don't know if it's going back to a dollar or back to 50 cents. So you probably don't buy all of the hamburgers you need for the next year. You probably make a small bet here until something gets to just an absolutely massive deal. And that's where the auction really matters. Because if you don't buy the hamburger at 50 cents, someone else is, you know, McDonald's is going to back up the truck buy all the hamburgers at 50 cents and all of a sudden that deal is not going to be on the table anymore. Beautifully said. And what, what I'll say that we, we, what we won't do and what we can't do here is tell you what to do in a situation. But we can talk about how we think about it, how other investors like Warren Buffett you know, have analogies they've raised around this. And so I'll give a, a take on how I think about things and then but you can see if that matches your psychology, matches your time horizon, et cetera. And I think the hamburger analogy is is really close. Uh, typically, what I don't do is dollar cost average in very much to things, uh, like at least the typical dollar cost averaging, because typical dollar cost averaging is like same day every month, same day every year, whatever the, the cadence is, invest the same amount of money or same percent of money into the market or into a specific equity. And then over time, the highs and lows wash out, right? I don't do that. But what I do that you could consider to be a version of dollar cost averaging, but it's not how I think about it, is more to your hamburger analogy, where if I have the equities or the overall market, because I do it with the overall market too, um, if I have a sense for what the, the top price is that I'd be willing to pay for it, and then I have a sense for like what I believe could be the, the bottom I have a sense for that. And those numbers are typically pretty far apart. Like there could be 50% delta between those two numbers. I'll come in at what I think the, not when I say the top, I don't mean the, the high end of the valuation of that stock. I mean the highest price at which I would be willing to buy it, which is usually kind of low. Well, um, and I know then, you're not a value investor, but there should be some margin of safety there. And what yeah. I mean by that is if you think the stock's worth 300 bucks a share, typically for me, that means I'm buying the stock at, 180 to 150 you know yep. like I, yep. i'm trying to have that baked in and exactly. all good investors are exactly and so then this doesn't happen all the time that equities but buy it at a price knowing that there's a high likelihood that that stock could go down and in some circumstances like we talked about last week when it's a like a high conviction 
stock for me, I'll set a limit order immediately for something that might be 10, 20, 30% lower. That that's like that's what I do. What I'll the one play the one thing I will say is that for for myself is that I believe if I am not willing to take a sizable hit on a conviction play in the near term, I should not be investing in that equity. That's because my time horizon is typically longer. So I, I'm I'm not typically buying typically, I'm not typically buying something that I'm trying to sell within the year or even trying to sell in year, in one year. Sometimes it happens. Like in 2020, I did a bunch of that, but that's like not typically um what I do. And so therefore, I just say like there's not trying to buy at the bottom, but there's trying to buy with a margin of safety relative to where you think it could end up. And then be willing to take some sort of a 10, 20, 30, sometimes 50% hit and be willing to buy again. Um, that, that's, that's like, that's my take on it. Um, but if, if it's difficult to, for you to take a 30% hit on something, like if that will tear into your insides, then, then like, that's, that's really difficult, but you have to, you also have to think about like your emotion around the fear of missing out and which feels worse to you. Does it feel worse for you to be sitting in cash or wherever that is right now and to miss out? Or does it feel worse for you to take that 30% hit? And you have to know yourself whether or not you're able to pull the trigger again, you know, at that 30% or whether you even can, um, you know, the cash wise, right? Because it depends on your, you know, financial situation too. But those are some thoughts I have. It's a really challenging, it's a, it's just a great question because, um, I think where he's going with this is almost, it sounds like a really conservative investor and that um, his price targets have so much margin, margin of safety that a lot of time he, he doesn't get to pull the trigger. Um, again, we can't, we can't diagnose your investor psychology and that has to be a personal decision. But what I would add on that side of the equation is simply that all successful stock markets, which is the majority of stock markets in the world over long periods of time, go up a lot more than they go down. So you have to find a way, if you truly believe in owning companies and building wealth through owning companies, to be invested more often than not, right? It, what, what typically never works, and I can give you 20 bucks that do back tests on this, is to go to cash and hold large majorities of cash for large portions of time. So you can't... Well, I. For most people, that's not a winning game, right? You can't be so conservative that you never get to pull the trigger on the stocks that you truly believe are undervalued. Uh, there's some calibration there. And the way I calibrate is I'm just always buying things that I feel are cheap. And right now, or for the past couple of years, that's meant that I've bought a lot more internationally than I normally would. So, So there's ways around it. Maybe he could broaden his horizons in terms of what, equities are interesting to him and maybe go to value stocks in the UK potentially or other places um, outside of the the list of names he's looking at it's hard as you said a couple times this is this is this is classic it's like the ultimate question very difficult question a fantastic question but this this is the pinnacle of investor psychology this question right here so and and I want to tie a few things up because we're deep in a rabbit hole. I mean, you mentioned dollar cost averaging before. Wh where you can make this simple, guys, is if you buy index funds twice a month when you get paid, dollar cost averaging, you're going to have very good results over 40 years unless you totally butcher your approach, which is even hard to do these days. So 
if you hear this conversation and go, this sounds way too complex and I don't even, you know, my head explodes at the thought of this complexity. Just laugh at me and Dougal's as we make these decisions on a monthly basis or a yearly basis. It doesn't have to be this complex, but it's an important question. And and where this leads then, Dougal's, is almost to a position sizing question, right? Remember when Joel Greenblatt did the Marriott spinoff and he put like 60% of his wealth. This is uh, back from the William Green book, so I'm going to get the numbers wrong. But he put somewhere north of 40% of his wealth into one equity at one point in time because it was screaming to him, this is really low risk. And this is what I got to do. That's impressive. And other people have made that bet and been wrong on that bet. And they didn't turn out to be Joel Greenblatt. They turned out to be some nobody that switched careers yeah. because they went boss, right? You don't read their books. <laughs> they don't write the survivorship them. bias. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know what? And I said last thing, here's here's the other thing you need to be thinking about. I just pulled up a the S&P 500 chart. I think we're down 23-ish percent year to date. Look historically, I mean, we think there's room to run on the downside, but pullbacks that are significantly greater than 20% are pretty dang rare as well. So, like, you kind of have to take some bets here as if you're playing poker with probabilistic outcomes because could it be a 40% downturn when all of a sudden done? Absolutely yeah. could. But could it also start to reverse from here and we could have five years and slight positives? Absolutely. And then it, that's where if you're if you never deployed the cash and you sit on the cash for the next five years, that's not a way to long term yeah. wealth at all. Let me throw out one more thing here. So Vitaly Caddis Nelson, um, who's based in Colorado, uh, runs his own firm and writes books, has one of the best books, I think, on establishing a sell criteria. But in a way, if you establish a sell criteria, it also helps you establish a buy criteria. So this is something our friend from Norway might want to check out. It's called The Little Book of Sideways Markets. How to Make Money in Markets That Go Nowhere, um, which I think kind of goes to this point because in a, in a so-called sideways market, it's like there's not a clear valuation in terms of this is the most expensive market I've ever seen or this is the cheapest market I've ever seen. If you're in either of those extremes, it's probably pretty easy to know the path forward. But you're if you're in this middle ground, I think this book could provide some insights. I really like it. I think okay, that's guys. it for today. It's good. Just remember, don't rate and review the podcast on this one. You can't share <laughs> it with a friend, though. Dougal's mentioned the Substack. It's really good, and we're doing. We're going to do more and more stock market stats there, um, and try and build a community. So, uh, SkippyDougal's.substack.com. Twitter is at SkippyDougal's. Listener mail. Thanks again for that today, and send us some more. Uh, SkippyDougal's at gmail.com. and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>